fun. If you guys want to go to Sunday school, you can, or you can stay here, whatever your parents want, but you're free to go now, I think. Oh. All right, guys, will you open up your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 24? If you're visiting or new, we've been studying through the book of Genesis, and the teaching style here at Calvary Chapel is what's referred to as expository teaching. And um, and that would be in contrast uh, to what a lot of people refer to as a topical style uh, teaching method. And, and the expository style of teaching simply means that we begin at a book of the Bible in the very beginning, like at the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And we go through that book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, not skipping anything, and, and keeping the whole counsel of God uh, before us and keeping it within the context that it was written. And, 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 and one of the reasons we do that is because we want to just not teach you from the Bible. We want you to be taught the Bible because we believe that the Bible is the living word of God and that the word of God alone through the power of the Holy Spirit has the ability and, 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 and to, to change our lives from the inside out, to do a work in our heart that is then manifested by the way that we live and the words that we speak and because of the faith that we profess in Jesus Christ. And, and so my prayer and hope this morning is, again, that God's word through his spirit would be made known to our hearts, to our minds, that we would be changed, transformed, conformed in the very image of Jesus Christ through the knowledge and wisdom that we gain that God's word has even still for our lives today. And so with that, in Genesis chapter 24, I want to point out that we started that chapter last week and we made it most of the way through 24, which details for us how Isaac was the son of Abraham and um, how Isaac and Rebekah, who was his wife when we studied that historically, chapter 24 accounts how they came to be husband and wife. And from this chapter, we learned how Abraham had commanded his servant, uh, to go back to the, to the land that God had called him out of in order to find a woman, from who, who, a woman who was from his country and from his family. And we know that Abraham had been dwelling in the land of Canaan for many years now. And um, that was the land that God had promised to him. The land of Canaan later uh, becomes refer, or is later referred to as the promised land. Um, and and um, it is the land still today that belongs to Israel. By the way, every bit of it, I don't care what the UN says or decrees, um, God's word has given them a deed to that land long before, and um, God's the one that sustains that and upholds that. Just a little side note. But God, uh, God, our Abraham had given this servant specific instructions, right? The specific instructions and in, in who he was to um, bring back for a wife. And with these specific instructions that we read about last week, Abraham's servant swore an oath uh, to not take a wife from the land of Canaan. And he also swore to not take Isaac with him. And there's a whole reasoning for that, and we went into all that last week. And if you weren't here and you want to, to listen to the study on the first half of chapter 24, it's on our website, and you can go and listen there. But 
He, he wasn't to, to take a wife from the land of Canaan for Isaac, nor was he to take Isaac with him. Rather, he was strictly commanded to make the journey on his own and bring the woman back with him. And, and, and realizing, because obviously this servant was a very practical man, and so was Abraham as well, that they realizing that the woman would have to also agree to this, really agree to, to um, go with a man, a servant whom she did not know, back to a land that she had never been in order to marry a man she had never met. Ladies, I don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> but, but, but Abraham, in light of that, he made a concession to his servants and told them that, okay, if the woman was not willing to follow him back, then he would be released from this oath that he had made. So having sworn the oath, the servant journeyed um, with 10 of his master's camels, we're told, and, and, the, and these camels bore gifts um, um, to Abraham's former country. And, and we know that when he got there, he prayed to God to help him find this particular woman. And in response to the servant's prayer, we know that God brought Rebecca. <coughs> and he revealed to her, or he, excuse me, and he revealed her to the servant to be the right woman that he had journeyed for, that he had come for. And, and um, uh, the one who was supposed to be uh, Isaac's wife, the one who was really ordained and chosen by God to be Isaac's wife. So the servant, when he realized this, he gave praise and thanks to God, we're told, and he gave Rebecca gifts, a nose ring and a couple of gold bracelets as, a, as an adornment to her. And, and in doing so, he went to meet Rebecca's family. And he explained why he'd come. He explained his intentions to take Rebecca with him. And he also revealed how God had manifested all of these things. And even though Rebecca's family agreed that it was God's will for her to go and agreed to let Rebecca leave, we've seen, and we talked about this a little bit at the end of our study last week, we've seen that Rebecca still had to choose for herself what she would do. And so we regain the story. Look now with me back to Genesis chapter 24, verse 58. And it says that then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, verse 59, their sister, and her nurse and Abraham's servants and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beor Leroy and, and dwelt in the south. And, and uh, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. He lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then, verse 67, Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you.
in humble gratitude, God, of um, all that you've done for us. Lord, there's many things going on in each of our lives that you know intimately and personally. Things, Lord, that we rejoice in and things, God, that are grieving and burdensome to our hearts, Lord. But we know that we can come to this place, not because it's a special place, but because we come together in your name seeking you. And and we can come together to this place seeking you and know, God, that you'll meet us where we're at. I pray, Lord, for (coughs) each and every person here, God, who you know individually and personally. I pray, Lord, that you would meet their needs this morning through the study of your word, through through the, the words that your Holy Spirit will speak to each of our hearts and minds. And God, um, we trust, Lord, that you have good for our future, for tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And Lord, that the, the best thing that we can do is, is take the um, instructions and commands found in your word and to apply them to our lives in faith, by faith. And so, Father, may we be strengthened in faith to go from this place, Lord, following after you, doing what you've commanded. Lord, loving you and loving others and setting aside ourselves. We pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I want to kind of connect as we go on to where we were at last week. So <clears throat> it may not seem so abrupt since we ended right in the middle. And, and, and it'll kind of build the historical connection as far as the timeline events and the story. And, and, and But when I read... When, when, when I ended last week, I, I, I quoted um, a, a man, Reverend Frank um, Borum, and he was an Australian reverend, and he had written many books, and, and, and he, he said this, he said, and, and if you remember this quote, he said, we make our decisions, and then our decisions turn around and make us. And if you really meditate on it, you, you can understand how profound that is, but really how it really applies to... What we see here with Rebecca, who, as we began reading, when, she, when, they, when the family came to her and said, will you go? And she said, I will go. Those three words, I will go, were words that um, set her feet to a path that, 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 that in where that decision she made made her into something um, wonderful that, that allowed God to bring forth his divine plan and will in and through her life. And in light of this, quote, we make our decisions and then our decisions turn around and make us. In light of this, I pointed out that from the very minute that Rebecca was willing to leave her home and did leave her home in order to become Isaac's wife, she was not only under God's special care, but she had entered into a covenantal agreement. She had become a partaker of all the promises of God that had been made to Abraham and his descendants. Furthermore, it was more than that because she she not only became a partaker, like we talked about, she became a part, an instrumental part of God's plan to bring salvation to the whole world. Yet Rebecca was not aware, obviously, of all these things at the time when she chose to leave her family and all that was familiar to her behind in order to go to a strange land and become Isaac's bride to, to, to a man she had never met. But I think it's important for us to see what Rebecca did know. Because she, she did know some things that aided in her decision to say, I'll go. 
important things. And what we'll see when we look at this is that I, is, is how these things motivated her to make this life-changing decision. And, and guys, as you study this, we study this out and we read this, understand that's often how God works in our own lives, is that he reveals certain things to us to aid us in that process of making a decision to follow after him, to be a part of his plan for our lives. You know, one of the things that it talks to us about in the New Testament, it says that, that God thoroughly equips us for good works. And, and, and really what our job is, is, is that God appoints these good works. He, he appoints us for good works. He calls us to good works. And, and, and what our job is to walk in them. That's it. But God will lead us and guide us to that place where we know what his will is and then, and then gives us that comfort and assurance that gives us the faith to step out into the good works that God's appointed for us to do. And, 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 and a lot of these things are exampled by what we read and study here in regards to Rebecca and how she came to make these things uh, a part of her decision. And, and before I go on, I want to point out that these, uh, before I go on and point out all these things, I, I want to let you know that it's important to note that Rebecca, there was two things for sure that she had. Um, she had heard the testimony of the servant, right? She had heard the testimony of the servant uh, who had revealed how God had led him to her. And she had heard the servant's words about Isaac, the man to whom she would be married to. And, and in both of those things that she had come to know, what we see is that when she heard these things, she believed it. She believed it. And in other words, at the very foundation of her decision to say, I will go, at the very foundation of that, to walk in the good works that God had appointed for her, at the very foundation of her decision was faith. Yet her faith was not a blind faith, for even though she had not seen Isaac, she had proof of his greatness, of his generosity, and of his wealth by the simple gifts that were given to her and her family. Furthermore, even though Rebecca had never seen Isaac, what she had been told about him was, was it, it convinced her to, to go to Canaan, to be with him for the rest of her life. However, as Rebecca processed through her decisions, I'm sure there was moments of humanness that played into her stepping out in faith that, that we can all relate to. Because she must have considered the fact that she had never seen Isaac. How many of you ladies here would marry somebody you have never seen? Anyone? Guys? No, I mean, it's, it's not a normal thing. And, 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 and certainly she would have considered this. And she may have even wondered if this servant that had spoken these things to her, she may have even considered, is he, is he lying? Is he tricking me? Is he a fraud? Furthermore, it's likely that she thought about how far away the land of Canaan was. Even though she had never been there, these people knew what it was to travel from one land to another. And like I mentioned last week, Canaan was somewhere between 450 to 500 miles one way. Months on a camel. And she, 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 she certainly had to consider how long the journey would be. And, and in light of that, that she may also never see her family again. 
as a result of her willingness to say, I will go. But in light of these things, we see that Rebecca had determined to become Isaac's wife, to become the wife of a man she knew only by hearsay. Yet in light of this, there's a spiritual application that is revealed by the words of Peter who wrote about our faith in Jesus and said this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In addition to this decision that Rebecca had made, there's a truth that is revealed that is applicable for those people today who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ like many of us have. In that, a decision for Jesus is a decision of faith. That's what Peter's writing about. We walk by faith, not by sight. And the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And, and, and there's this there's this connection in that a decision for Jesus is a decision of faith that is based upon evidence. The Bible's clear in that. It's not a blind faith. It's a, it's, a, it's a faith that is based upon evidence that's provided by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit draws men unto Jesus Christ through the Word of God, but also through the testimony and the witness of the church, you and I, meaning those of us who have already, already gone forward in faith to become the bride of Christ. And you know now, as a result of your decision to follow Jesus Christ, whom you've never seen yet, that the Bible says, whom we've not seen with our eyes, but yet whom we love, that once we've stepped out in faith, so much more has become made known to us and how we become a part of all the covenantal promises that God's made to us through this new covenant in Jesus Christ. And when a person is provided these kinds of evidences, you know what? The Bible makes another point, that they must not delay in making their decision. Rebecca did not delay. Did she ponder? Did she contemplate? Absolutely. Did she go into it blindly? No. But she did not hesitate when the time came to be called to go. She said, I will go. And, 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 and there's an application in this because delaying in making a decision is a dangerous thing when it comes to walking in faith, when it comes to following after Christ. Because when a person does this, when a person delays, the Bible says they then become in danger of losing the opportunity to become a part of God's family. If Rebecca had delayed, she would have been at risk of becoming part of God's family a partaker of God's promises, and, and ultimately a partaker of his plan to save them when a person delays today. And this is why there are warnings in the Bible, like Hebrews verses, chapter 3, verse 7, which says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It doesn't say, just come follow me blindly. He says, today, if you will hear his voice, the testimony of the Holy Spirit, the witness of the church, the word of God calling out to you and drawing him unto you. The events that have taken place in your life that's leading up perhaps to this day, to this moment in time where God's calling you to step out in faith and say, I will go. I will give my life. I will become your bride. 
Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Another passage of scripture that says the same thing in a different way, really, is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, which says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I love that verse because if you're like me, when God called me, I didn't believe there was an acceptable time. And that's because I had my eyes focused on myself and my shortcomings and my failures and who I was, an imperfect bride, a stained bride, if you will. And I'm sure Rebecca, as a lot of ladies are like, they're like, you know, this guy, he's great, he's wonderful. You know, all these things are true. What, what, I'm going to ride on this camel. What if I get there and what if he doesn't want me? What if he doesn't like me? What if he doesn't love me? And a lot of people stand away from the Lord Jesus Christ and following after him and taking that step of faith because they believe that if they do that, that they somehow may be rejected, unwanted, unloved. But God assures us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, Behold, now is the accepted time. God's saying, I accept you, come. I want you, come. I've sent my servant to come after you. I've known you, he said, while you were still yet in your mother's womb. I chose you to be mine. Now is the day of salvation. So, Rebecca, in saying that she would go, she went to the land of Canaan, and according to verse 66, if you look here in our text, when the servant explained to Isaac all the things that he had done, it says that Isaac received her as his wife. I love this whole picture, this, this marriage of faith kind of a thing. Um, it, in a lot of ways, it's similar to my own marriage with my wife. Not, not specifics in the, in the specifics where I lived in a foreign land and she lived in a foreign land, but, but truly her and I, um, we, we were unbelievers and we had a child out of wedlock and we did the quote-unquote what we believe was the right thing. And shortly after that, God drew Adam back into a relationship with the Lord. I came to know the Lord for my own personal Savior. And, and, and as I look back on what, what we did in that moment, um, I knew enough about God that marriage is what God would want from me in that moment. It was a step of faith. Um, Autumn would tell you that I loved her and she didn't love me for a while. She wasn't in love with me. That's the truth. But because we were willing to take that step of faith and honor in God and say, let's go, God's done a wonderful thing. And we've been married for 24 years and we have four children. And, and God's done spectacular, awesome things and making um, his promises come to pass in our lives. And as I look at Rebecca and Isaac in this thing here, you know, it, I don't think it was by chance that he was out in the field. I think he knew that, hey, the servant should be coming back. And it reminds me of that passage of scripture where the prodigal son and the father was there waiting every day for the son to return. I think, Abra I think Isaac was waiting. Every day I think he would get up and sit in the field and look off into the distance to see if he could see the camels coming in the horizon, bringing his bride to him, waiting in anticipation. And that's a perfect, what a, what a romantic thing that is. And, 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 and uh, we're told that when he came, again, verse 66, when she came, he received her as his wife. Then in verse 67, it says that Isaac loved her. He didn't know her, but he made a choice, it says, a decision to love her. And that's what truly marital love is rooted in, agape love. It's rooted in this decision. It's a choice to love. And, and, and it says that she, in turn, was a comfort to him. 
after his mother Sarah had died. Now, as we read on with these things in our mind into chapter 25, we're going to be told about another woman by the name of Keturah, Keturah, who, who came to be the wife of Abraham after Sarah's death, Sarah being Isaac's mom, which we read here, and then Abraham's first wife. And because Abraham's own death is recorded in this chapter, in chapter 25, we're going to see that all the names of Isaac's, or of Abraham's son, from three of his wives, from the three of his wives, all the names are accounted for. And even though there are some spiritual representation within the meanings of these names that I'm going to say before I go and read them are really hard to pronounce, so give me some grace. Um, You know, even though there's spiritual representation, guys, I want you to keep the main thing the main thing as we go through this. And we don't want to lose sight of the main reason for these, what we would refer to as genealogies, which is, and the main reason for them is is this, this continued documentation of the genealogy of God's promised Messiah. The promise of the Messiah to come through Abraham, through Isaac, and down all the way to Jesus of Nazareth. And with that, if you'll join in following along as I read chapter 25 now, where it says, Abraham then again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore to him Zimran, Jokhan, um, Medan, Midian, um, Ishbak, and, Sh- and Sh- Shayua. Uh, Jokshan, verse uh, 3, begot Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, uh, him and Liamim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanuk, Abidad, and Eldaah. All of these were the children of Keshura. And Abraham gave, which seems kind of an odd thing perhaps at this point to state this, but it says, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Now, verse 7, it says that some of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, were 175 years. And and these verses that we read here is, is really much like a eulogy that might be read at a funeral. And it says, Then Abraham breathed his last and died a good old age, as an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the sons of the son of Zor, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zor, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And it came to pass, verse 11, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer, Lerai Roy. Now, verse 12, this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, the Egyptian's uh, the, the Egyptians, uh, Sarah's maidservant who had bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael, and by their names according to their generations. The firstborn Ishmael, um, the, the firstborn of Ishmael is um, Nebajoth, the, uh, then Kedor, Abil, um, Mibsham, and then Misha, Duam, Masah, Hadar, Tima, Jetur, um, Nephish, and um, and these were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns, their settlements. Twelve princes, and you might want to underline this, twelve princes according to their nations. That's significant. 
And then verse 17, it says, And these were the years of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. So we're kind of closing the door on two uh, lines or generations of people or the sons that were born to, 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 um, to Abraham specifically. And it says, They dwelt in Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go toward Assyria. He died in the presence of all of his brethren. Then verse 19 says, This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Um, Abraham's begot Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old, verse 20, when he took Rebekah as his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. And that's significant because we're going to get to know Laban a little bit in the chapters that proceed. And he's a scoundrel. So in verse 21, it says, Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her and said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, and this is, this is a statement, but it's also really prophetic, and it says, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, and so they called him called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's hill, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of the game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And we're going to stop there and try to make it through the rest of these verses with the time that we have left. Now, if you look back to the first 11 verses, I want to point out that there are several things in this chapter that are, are notable, that are important. And the first really is here in verse 4. If you look at verse 4, um, it, it speaks about one of the six sons that Abraham had with Keshura, a, a son named Midian. And he singled out in, in, from the other sons with, with the naming of the sons that were then born to him. Um, and this is due to the fact that the descendants of Midians, who historically, as we study through the Old Testament, as we go on, they'll become known as the Midianites. You guys may have, have heard of these guys. And, and, and they're, they're, they're mentioned here, and they're distinguished and set up and kind of... The, the descendants are, are marked and, and, and accounted for because they're going to have an important role in regards to the chosen line of Isaac. And, and everything that we read from now on is really going to be only documented as it relates and important to Isaac and the nation of Israel. That's kind of what this chapter is doing for us, is it kind of takes a broad thing and narrows it way down or funnels it way down for our attention to be specifically focused on one descendant of Abraham. And so as we see this, this detail being given here, it's because of the relationship to Isaac in the future. And, and, and one of the first accounts of this is recorded in Exodus chapter 2, where it records the time when Moses fled from Pharaoh, left Egypt, and went to live in the land of Midian. Yeah. And in doing so, we know that Moses lived with the Midianites for 40 years before returning to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel um, from Egyptian captivity and into the promised land. But before returning to Egypt, we're told that Moses took a woman, a Midianite woman by the name of Zephora, for his wife. 
And, and even though one of the sons of Keturah had this distant connection to the descendants um, of Isaac in a historical fashion, we know historically that the Midianites were not friends or allies of the, Israel, of the Israelites. In fact, when you go to the book of Judges, and we mentioned this man uh, last week a little bit, but when you go to the book of Judges, specifically Judges chapter 6 through 8, we're told this awesome story, this awesome account of a man by the name of Gideon who was called by God, and he was called by God to go and fight against the Midianites. And, and in those chapters, in Judges chapter 6 through 8, it tells us that the children of Israel had done, sight, had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And how many times do you read that in the Old Testament? I mean, that's hope for all of us knuckleheads too, right? As the children of, of God, sometimes we still sin, sometimes we still fall short, but God never gives up on us. And God did not give up on his people, even when they did evil in his sight at this time by worshiping a false god by the name of Baal. And so in that, God, we're told, gave them over the Midianites, the Midianites who enslaved them for seven years. God said, you're going to be enslaved for seven years, and such was the case. But at the end of seven years, um, uh, God, through Gideon and through 300 men that followed Gideon and fought along his side that they were able to defeat the armies of Midian in a miraculous way because we're told that they numbered more than the sands of the sea and yet God used Gideon to, to free Israel from their impression. So even though there's a historical significance tied to the naming of all the children of of, uh, of Keshura, Abraham's third wife, the most significant reason for why they are counted here in, uh, or, or accounted for here in chapter 25 is revealed to us in verses 5 through 6, the main reason, the main point. And, and, and in these verses, we're told that even though Abraham had given gifts to his sons, to all of his sons, it says that all that he had was given to Isaac. All that he had was given to Isaac. And while Abraham was still alive, we see by these verses that he did what God had instructed him to do. By recognizing Isaac as the son that God had promised him, by recognizing Isaac as the son that God had um, uh, given to him as an heir and in these verses, we see Abraham at the end of his life establishing this, setting it forth for the future and establishing Isaac as his heir by sending all these other sons away. That's one of the things that we're also told. He gave them gifts and then he sent them away. He sent them away from Isaac, just like he had previously done with Ishmael. So Abraham, having put his house in order, that's what we, we kind of account here, is Abraham, having put his house in order, lived according to verse 7, it says, to be 175 years old before he breathed his last breath and died. And as it was when we read about Sarah's death, we're once again given this awesome reminder in this awesome picture of eternity and life after death with Abraham's death as verse 9 as you see there, as verse 9 tells us that the tomb of Machpelah was the place where his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, had buried him. And I, I'm sure that was probably his request, because as we looked at the time when Abraham had purchased this cave, we've seen that it was very intentional, very purposeful in buying this particular piece of land as a burial place for his wife, Sarah. 
And when we read about Sarah's death back in chapter 23 of Genesis, where the cave of Machpelah is first mentioned, I pointed out that its name means the cave of two doors, which is probably given, uh, was probably given to this cave to describe a certain physical feature that was unique to it. But the fact that this cave with two doors served as a tomb for Abraham and for his wife Sarah and would also be the burial place for Isaac and his wife Rebekah and Jacob and his wife Leah, all who were children of faith whom the Bible describes as sojourners that were looking for a heavenly country in order, it says, to possess a a, um, home, an eternal home that had been made with God's hand. In light of all these things, we're given really, again, this cool picture of how death for us as believers, for those who have said, I will go and follow after Christ, that, that death for us is not the end. And that the tomb, guys, is not our final resting place. And we know that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, that there's an open door or a door that's been opened for us that leads to eternal life. And in light of this, we remember that we must remember that this earth is not our home. And I know this is a hard thing to do on a daily basis, and that's one of the reasons why the Word of God reminds us of it so often in so many different cool and unique ways, that this is not our home. This is not it. God has something better for us, and we must live with that perspective because when we live with the perspective of eternity, it puts the temporal things in, in, their, in their, their proper importance. It, it prioritizes things for us so that we can be about the eternal things even while we live here in this place that is temporary. In fact, one of the other reasons I bring this up, guys, just so you know, again and again and again, is because Scripture is clear in telling us that as often as we gather together in the name of Jesus, like we're doing today, as often as we do this, that we are um, called to remind each other. As often as we gather together in his name, we're called to remind each other and comfort one another with this good news with the knowledge and with the hope that eternal life is waiting for us. Now, there's one other thing that I want to point out about Abraham's death before we kind of go on, and it's in light of verse 9. And in verse 9, we read that Isaac and Ishmael came together to bury their father. And if you remember, when we last read about Isaac and Ishmael, they weren't really buds. Let's just say that. They weren't, they weren't loving brothers. And even though we don't know if these brothers had any interaction before this, prior to their father's death, after they had been separated, this is the first documented time that they had been together since Ishmael had mocked Isaac and Abraham had sent him and his mother away. But here, what we read, here... Through Abraham's death, there appears to have been a reconciliation. Maybe even a reestablished relationship between them. And this is significant because there's a biblical truth about forgiveness and about reconciliation that's being illustrated, I think, here for us. And it's, and it's the fact that without death, there can be no forgiveness and no reconciliation. Let me say that again. Without death, 
there can be no forgiveness and no reconciliation. And I know some of you are going who you may be at odds with right now, and you're like, yes, I knew it. I got to go take care of that guy. I got to go, go take him out so there can be, that's not what I mean. That's not what's being referred to here. But it's a truth biblically nonetheless. Without death, there can be no forgiveness and no reconciliation. And, and this truth is declared to us word by word in, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says that. And spiritually, this is true for all of us in regards to our own relationship with God. Think about it. Meaning, without the shedding of blood, the Bible tells us, specifically the blood of Jesus, none of us could be forgiven by God. By his death and resurrection, we have been made right with God through his death, forgiveness, through his death, reconciliation. And this truth was graphically illustrated for the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, by the commands that were given to them in the law given to Moses, who then instructed the people from the law on how to and when to make all kinds of animal sacrifices as an offering to God. What was the reason for that? To illustrate the fact that without death, without the spilling of blood, there was no relationship with God, no forgiveness, no connection. Furthermore, the law commanded that there would be a yearly sacrifice that was specific to that, an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people that was to be made by the high priest who would then take, it says, the blood of that animal into the temple, into the most holy place, the very dwelling place of God here on this earth, and sprinkle the blood of that animal on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat. But we know that all these sacrifices, when we read through the book of Hebrews, we've been studying that on Wednesday nights. And by the way, there's only, there's short and sweet this, this next Wednesday, Subnote announcement. And then Curtis has one chapter left that you're going to follow with the book of Hebrew. And then I'm going to go start teaching again on Wednesday nights for a while. And we're going to be going through the book of James. So if you're interested in a study through the book of James, please join us on Wednesdays. It's, 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 the book of James has been referred to the proverb of the New Testament. And man, it's an awesome and powerful book, and I would appreciate it if you guys would come and be a part of it. But back to where we're at here. Um, if, you, if you look to the book of Hebrews, th- these truths are made known to us. And if you, specifically in, in chapter 9, if you, you read through all these things, what you're going to see is, is that, that the author of Hebrews points out that these sacrifices, all the sacrifices and the yearly atoning sacrifice, was just a foreshadowing of better things to come, is what, the, what it says. Specifically, the sacrifice that Jesus made of his own life on our behalf so that we might be forgiven and reconciled back to God. No forgiveness and reconciliation without death, by death, through death. And just like there had been or there had to be a death in order for our own spiritual reconciliation and our own restoration to God, listen to me, guys. This is where it gets real, um, it gets to the nitty-gritty. Because in that same way, there must also be death in regards to our own earthly relationships for those times when we are in need of forgiveness in order to be reconciled back to one another. There must be death. There has to be death. And this is what I mean. In other words, without a dying to self, unless we're willing to die to ourself, there cannot be forgiveness and reconciliation. If you find yourself in a place where you are um, separated 
and distant and in and, and, and a place where there's no reconciliation and no forgiveness is because there's been no death. You have to be willing to die to yourself. And reconciliation can only happen through death because, death because the door of forgiveness only opens up when someone's willing to make the decision to die to their self and to make the decision to put, the, put to death the pride of our flesh and humble ourselves and go to that person who we've offended or sinned against and say, will you please forgive me? I'm sorry for what I've done. And if you've ever been in that spot, you know this, this truth, spiritually speaking, and, and applicable, applicable to our lives now, you know that's true. What are you really fighting against at that point? You're fighting against yourself. You're going, oh, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. They did this, but that, and on and on and on. And really the battle is, is, is putting to death self. But in regards to the restoration, this dying to self, guys, is not exclusive to the one asking for forgiveness, for it's also something that the person who is being asked to forgive must also do. They must also put, put to death as well, put something to death. In other words, the other person also has to put to death the desire of their flesh and let go of their hurts in order to be forgiven, Right? You've been in that spot where someone's come up to you and they've offended you and they've sinned against you or they've harmed you or they've hurt you and they're like, I'm sorry for what I've done. Will you please forgive me? And you're like, well, yeah, no. Or we're like, you don't really mean it. Or I mean, and we're hanging on or, and we're put these conditions and, and really we're unwilling to die to ourselves, to our rights, to be hurt, to our hurts, to our pride. And when, if, we're, if there's unwillingness for death, there will never be any restoration. But it's clear that as those who have been forgiven by God, the Bible tells us that we in the same way, in the same manner must forgive one another. And good, guys, draw the connection here. How was forgiveness made possible to us? Through Christ's death. So why should we not also be expected to experience that kind of dying to self in order for forgiveness to come forth? And yet God says for us that we must forgive one another as Christ has also forgiven us. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 31 through 32 says it like this. And it prefaces it with this. It says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. That's where you start, a dying to self. And he says, and then be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as we read on with the whole four minutes we have left, Verses 12 through 18, I'm just going to go through this really quickly. It, it, it details the genealogy for, of Ishmael for us. And it's, it's, it's for the same reasons that the sons who were born to Keshura were previously mentioned. The same reasons we have Ishmael's genealogy mentioned. In other words, Ishmael's genealogy is being accounted alongside Isaac's in order to distinguish Isaac and his descendants as the rightful heirs to everything that Abraham had 
and everything that Abraham had been promised by God. And when we consider Ishmael and the promises of God together, you know, we also see evidence of God's faithfulness here in this chapter. God's faithfulness to keep his promises by what we read in verse 16, which tells us that these 12 sons of Ishmael were 12 princes who ruled over 12 nations. And if you look back to Genesis chapter 21, when Abraham had consulted with God, when he was really laboring over this request of Sarah to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, we see that God instructed Abraham to honor his wife and assured him at that time that Ishmael would not be lost that he would grow into a nation. And so in light of this genealogical account, we see that God had kept his promise to Abraham. Guys, all the promises of God are yes and amen. That's what it boils down to. God's completely faithful. And God had kept and would keep every promise that he had made to Abraham, even those who were, uh, even those promises that were extended to his descendants. And that's what's being set forth as a foundation for us with this genealogical account. And so Isaac was established as the rightful heir of these promises. And if you read with me there in verse 9 about Isaac's genealogy, we need to understand that it's different than the rest in that it just doesn't go through and start listing the names of Isaac's sons and then the sons to Isaac's sons, does it? And there's a reason for that because, listen, the cool thing about it, if you want to put it in perspective, the entirety of the the Old Testament from this point on is all about Isaac's descendants. It's his genealogy, if you will. Who they are, what they did, and all that had happened to them as God took one family and made them a mighty nation whose numbers are, are like the sands of the seashore. And through them, God, as he has promised, has blessed all the other nations of the earth. So what we see here, if Justin, you want to come up, and Seth, is we see the historical focus now shifting off of Abraham and onto Isaac. And in doing so, we're going to notice that Abraham and Isaac had many, many things in common. And I want to get into all of those. You're just going to have to wait with me until next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word this morning to us. Uh, Lord, I know personally just how hard it is to apply some of these things to our lives. It's specifically, God, this um, walking in faith every day. It's, it's challenging. It's difficult. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen us for that life you've called us to live. And, and Lord, also this, this reminder of eternity and living with the perspective that this place is not our home. And, and how does that play out on a daily basis for, for us, Father? I pray you give us wisdom and knowledge on how to apply that to our lives and to make the changes, God, that you would call us to make so that, that we're living for your kingdom and not for our own. And Lord, certainly this reminder of what it takes to, to forgive one another and, and what you've done for us in order that we might be forgiven. And God, your unconditional command for us to forgive and, and to receive and give forgiveness in the same way, God, that you've given forgiveness to us. And Father, I know that the struggle, I know personally the struggle that it is to die to self in order to do this. But I pray, God, that you would help us to put to death ourself, our flesh, And you tell us, God, there's nothing better than when brothers dwell together in unity. And you call us to be at peace with all men as much as it's up to us. So, Father, I pray you would strengthen us for this. And if anyone here, Father, this morning is struggling with that, I pray, God, that they would lay it down at your feet, at your cross. And that they would, as Justin prayed early, that they would take up your your yoke. Because your burden is light. Your yoke is light. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey.